Wharton Murphy. Wharton Murphy? What? How the hell did that happen? Cooper flew the coop. Welcome to A People's History of Violence, the podcast where we do deep dives in history's assassinations, affairs, crimes, groups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. We talk about the bad people who secretly make their own history and the history that made them. As always, I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. And uh, Peter, we're finally doing a heist. Yes, we kept promising them, but it kept not happening. But now we've got an honest-to-goodness in a pretty... Pretty pure heist. Yeah, yeah. Pretty, you know, there's uh, it's it's it just delivers the heist goods without a lot of other uh, you know, rigmarole. Yeah, no, nah, no, no uh, particular overt like violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no stern words. Right. Even, yeah. Politeness the whole way down, and mm-hmm. uh, the guy gets away. And up, politeness all the way up. So we're talking about D.B. Cooper today. Mm-hmm. The man who fell to earth. With a parachute out or not. Mm. Um, as the case may be. As the case may be. But I want to believe. Mm. So I feel like most of our listeners know something about D.B. Cooper. I'm not sure when I first learned about it. Probably an Unsolved Mysteries episode. Yeah, which is how like, child Isaac and apparently yeah. child Peter absorbed most of their mystery information the world yeah and then immediately told their friends mm-hmm. that they had to care about this thing yes now i do the same thing mm-hmm. um but as a little bit of background on the eve before thanksgiving november 24th 1971 a well-dressed man between 40 and 50 years old as best people could judge spoke english with no discernible accent arrived at the portland airport according to the ticket agent and flight attendants who saw him and passengers on board the flight that he boarded, he looked like a businessman. He bought a ticket under the name Dan Cooper, nope, boarded a Northwest Airlines flight from Portland, Oregon to Seattle, Washington. Standard commuter, especially business commuter route. As he, after he boarded the plane and got seated and in discreet notes and whispered words through the flight, he let flight attendants know that he had what at least appeared to be a bomb, but still keeping calm and collected, he let them know his terms. He would be holding the plane for ransom the amount of $200,000, $1.5 million thereabouts in today's money. And he would like two parachutes, uh, each one with a, a safety chute. During the flight, he smoked through eight filtered rally cigarettes, sleep through a magazine, drank a glass of bourbon, and upon receiving $200,000 and two parachutes, He gave specific directions on the heading, altitude, and speed that the plane should be on, including uh, which way to turn its fins. He said he had a grudge, though not against Northwest Airlines. And to the shock of the pilots, he ordered them to lower a unique feature on the Boeing 727 plane, a rear stairwell, 
which could open in the back of the plane. And he asked them to open that during the flight. He took his $200,000, tied it around his waist, and since then, disappeared. And since the two questions have hung over this case, which the FBI called Norjack. Who was he and why did he do it? And uh, did he even survive? So for me, Peter Howard, like the really fascinating thing with the Cooper case is the really quite vivid story that's told by the newly examined physical evidence on the case. I don't think most people know about this because it's a story when you look closely at it, that's about the kind of the collective turning away of the country from futuristic ambition and you know peaceful space age technology and demilitarized use of technology, uh, just turning away from that. And it's a story of you know the neoliberal restoration before it even happened. You can tell all that from physical evidence. You can. Wow. I swear. Amazing. Um, it's about unemployment, wrecked ambitions, and hopelessness. And in classic noir fashion, mm. hopeless unless you pull off that one big heist. That's right, folks. This is another noir story informed by the structural realities of the downfall of, of better dreams, not necessarily the best dreams, but better dreams axed by the capitalist revanchism we call neoliberalism. Yeah, but not, this, to, but not to bury it. It is still a story about a guy in a business suit yeah. holding an airplane hostage and then parachuting out the back with 200 grand yeah, no. into and, the and, Washington and, wilderness. And not getting caught. And not getting caught. You still don't know what happened. He's the only one to not get caught. Yeah. One thing I found, though, by just kind of the cursory looking into D, like the D.B. Cooperverse <laughs> uh, is that this is a this is a very unique little island in the 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 world of, of true crime mm. db cooper people are the only true crime equivalent that i could find to what in like kind of war nerd circles we think of as like the hardware nerd mm. like in other true crime communities you find people who are like kind of, kind of vaguely interested in dna but it's really just to make their point about yeah. the story and mm. the story is what's like very important in the db cooper world like they'll argue for like years about like the flight path and mm. and the drop zone and yeah and whether the tie that was recovered by the fbi was really his tie it wasn't, mm. it wasn't and on and on yeah whereas in the war space people are a lot more used to there being you know these hardware nerds like we say like people who are really into the specs uh and, and the capabilities of warplanes and tanks and guns and what have you uh, but you don't get that as much in true crime, I think. Yeah, the D.B. Cooper people, like, know the wind speed at different altitudes right. that night in yeah, so, so it really is an exception. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of the times, so for those of you who come to us through, say, Radio War Nerd, you know, hardware nerd is usually something of a uh, pejorative there, though I think it might be becoming less as the group grows and as maybe people mellow out a little in certain respects but yeah it's a pejorative you know the idea being that hardware nerds don't understand the politics uh culture and whatnot of war which is actually very important especially if you're going to understand uh the kind of wars that we see today though i think it's equally important that way i think it's less of a pejorative here because 
Here, a lot of the times, what you get instead of hardware nerdery and true crime is, you know, psychologizing yeah. and, and moralizing in ways that are usually suspect hunting. Yeah. yeah, suspect hunting, ways that are usually not very rigorous, not very helpful. Uh, so I do think that a certain amount of uh, hard evidence, interest in, in types of hard evidence, is salutary. The, the, the other aspect that like definitely comes through with like the DB Cooper community, which I I think I might have mentioned this to you. It it's just kind of adorable. They call it like getting sucked into the vortex. <laughs> there's there's lots of flight metaphors oh, yeah. and, and parachute metaphors. So inside the vortex, yes. um, you know, they, they just have a lot of fun with it. It's yeah. it's it's an obsession for these people, but it's like, you know, no one was hurt. Like no right. no one's on like a crusade to find the murderer. No. no. Or it's you know, not accuses like a, you of being a CIA agent. Right. I mean, we may be corrupting it by finding a political valence, but before then there wasn't much of a political implication to it. Uh, or no, was there? I, I you have some like a, a, I would say it's like vaguely left liberal yeah um, i mean you it, have a lot of critics of the fbi on there you have a lot of like like vaguely pro fbi people but everyone else just seems to have this like kind of detached scientific but right, exactly. really going to argue about right, it right right but it's not it's not one of our culture war footballs yeah it's i not. think just pretty much everybody can admit it's a cool caper uh it's interesting it's interesting to try to figure out what happened but it's not marred by like he wasn't yelling racial slurs on the way down. <laughs> no. uh, he 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 didn't kill anyone. He didn't. He wasn't even particularly mean. Like right. he. Uh, so after this plane takes off in in Portland and goes to uh, toward on its way towards Seattle, like the plane has he orders the plane basically like to stop at SeaTac Airport and get loaded up with his cash mm -hmm. um, and his parachutes. And like he also like orders food for the the crew and the pilots. Yeah. It's like, sorry guys. When he gets the ransom money, he like tries to give the flight attendants money. Mm. Like, sorry for inconveniencing yeah, yeah. you. Like Tom K. pointed out. Yeah, it was kind of a kind of a kind of a gentleman thief. Yeah. Um. So that's that's fine. And also like the statute of limitations is over. Oh yeah. It's just it's pure mystery. And right. there there was definitely a time when the FBI is like, people stop idolizing D.B. Cooper, <laughs> please. Yeah. Like he is a criminal. He terrified these these flight attendants. And like at yeah. at points, like some of the flight attendants were clearly terrified. Yeah. Kind of like not a consensus among them. Right. Like, and also like it is I mean, kind the guy of, said he had a bomb. Right. You don't know if the bomb's gonna explode by accident. You don't know if the guy, I mean, he seems pretty stable from most of the accounts, but you don't know whether that's gonna last. Was that one bourbon and soda that thing that put him over the edge? Yeah, yeah, to just flipping the switch and blowing them all out of the sky, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, it is a pretty, like, now here's what I want to know. This is just something I thought of. So statute of limitations is like seven years, right, for most crimes that aren't murder? Um, no, it varies a lot. Okay. Uh, I, I believe on this one, the statute of limitations was, I think this one was actually out to 20 years. Okay. Yeah. I obviously, I'm Because you're, 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 you're taking this thing, instrument of interstate commerce, the threat to use a bomb. Okay. Yeah. But in any event, if he came back after this, he knew the statute of limitations runs out. Yeah. Or if anyone who does a similar crime does that. So the statute of limitations are out. He can't be criminally charged. Could he be civilly sued? For like damages or like no, there's such a limitations on civil suits. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. I mean, you could you could file a civil suit and then be like, we can't ascertain his identity, so then it's like pending and suspending. Right. There's ways to get around that. Yeah. For various purposes. Because that would be my but, thought. If but I... but no, I mean, he would be like 90 years old now. Like. Right. If I did something like that, even if like I wasn't old, like even if I successfully evaded the law, and like I could, I felt like I could come back. I probably wouldn't on the off chance that there was some kind of way they could screw me over. Yeah. Anyway, this might be not the right place for this discussion, but I would assume I would be sued in civil court or, I don't know, the airlines would blackball me and I couldn't fly anywhere. <laughs> I, I, I would think that you list. could not get onto uh, a commercial plane. <laughs> Probably. Mm -hmm. So one thing that you, it's really not, except for the occasional like news headline, there's tons of documentaries about mm -hmm. D.B. Cooper that come out like every year, every couple of years usually trying to float a suspect some of them get engaging in the sciencey side but like what doesn't kind of come through is that there is a, a body of new evidence being built mm. every year even though the fbi formally closed the case mm. in 2016 and just declared we can't find him and mm. he's probably dead yeah and of course the fbi's position is is for the most part like we think he died and never came back yeah i don't know if i agree with that mm -hmm. but it is worth talking about with the kind of the Cooper researcher community, um, especially online, that they had this strange uh, QAnon-like mm. occurrence in real life, but like a benign mm. QAnon. Mm. Like basically the case had been laying dormant for years. And then an FBI agent named Larry Carr uh who was out of the Washington office and mainly worked bank robberies. So he, he Washington, worked on, or Washington State. Washington State. The, this is all out of the Seattle FBI office for the most part. He worked bank robberies and then he specially requested, you know, before he retired, uh, can I take over the D.B. Cooper case? And they're like, sure, please yeah. take this career ending dead right. end yeah. of a case. And he was like, awesome. He went on to forums about D.B. Cooper, in particular one it was actually like a, a subset of a parachutist forum oh. where they started some debates like way back in the 2000s between parachutist to parachutist being like, he could have survived that jump. No, he couldn't have. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, then it just became an all-purpose D.B. Cooper message board, message board mm -hmm. about uh, people's theories and mm -hmm. evidence and so on. And so he went on that, he called it the drop zone, and he started engaging in the people on there, and they would say like, well, that can't be true because the FBI doesn't have evidence about this. He's like, no, no, really, we do. Huh. And they're like, yeah, you're not an FBI. He's like, no, no, really, I am. Did he, did he like prove that he was? Did he give his... Eventually, he proved that he was, and he got approval from his superiors. He's like, this case isn't going anywhere. Right. Can I just like let people know about you know evidence that doesn't have to do with the investigation of particular people like particular suspects and they were fine with that uh i think he wore them down oh okay because that doesn't sound the fbi that doesn't sound like something the fbi would approve of even if it was harmless yeah They're not known for being you know no 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 and there's still stuff that they held yeah. back and there's agreements that people had to go into in order to see stuff like there's and we can possibly talk about this kind of in overtime segment, but there's like DNA and fingerprints that obviously mm -hmm. aren't going to be made public. Mm -hmm. Like they're not going to show like what the rich detail on the fingerprint looks like, mm -hmm. but they did let 
slip that they had DNA and fingerprints. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you know, Patriots are in control. Yeah, (laughs) there was there was the real uh, guy with the evidence uh, getting in the trenches with the with the theorists. Did he write insanely like like the Q guy? (laughs) No, no, no. Larry Kerr doesn't write insanely. Um, but the the interesting thing about this is it's kind of almost like a like citizen jury selection. This really like kind of brought together a lot of people who have specialized skills who yeah. otherwise wouldn't be involved in theorizing or investigating the case at all. Like mm-hmm. you have like journalists and parachutists mm-hmm. and metallurgists. And I mean, Tom Kay, who's like kind of at the head, at the forefront of this, was like kind of just an all-purpose scientist, specializes mm-hmm. in paleontology, but just writes mm. about science and the scientific method and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also have biologists and on and on and on. Um, and you also have like a lot of people in the community who are just openly critical of the FBI, mm. believe that they permanently bungled the case. Mm-hmm. I got to say, you know, I'm not trying to portray this this little research community as being as being nice all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're, they can be very... Uh, no, I'm sure they go hard on each root, other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it appears that like it's all kind of within the bounds of the of the custom, right? It's not yeah, everybody exactly. like going for each other's throat all right. the time with no regard. But they're like they'll find subjects that are entirely just opaque to people outside about what to argue about, like the the time of when he jumped, mm. whether it's like within like two or three or ten minutes. Oh wow! It's, it's just. Mm. But the real kind of crucial change in, you know, it just being like a place where people are talking about FBI reports that have been released like decades ago or someone's theory on whether this particular like guy out in Utah or Kansas or wherever was D.B. Cooper, mm. you know, whether Prison Break properly portrayed D.B. Cooper. And this is the part where I extend a formal invitation because you still think I'm D.B. Cooper. I don't think. I know. Here's what: How did he come to Probably be no. DB Cooper, not just Dan Cooper? It was just a, a news headline huh. that that basically misquoted. Oh wow! Um, so, so the gate agent and and maybe some police officers, and it, yeah, it was just Dan Cooper, which actually became important because there's this whole series of comics called Dan Cooper about mm-hmm. a pilot who oh. parachutes. Yeah. Hmm. But anyways. So the thing that Larry Carr did is a group of the, like a select group of these people within these forums were organized and organized themselves into kind of a little group called the, a bit of a corny name, but the Citizen Sleuths. Mm -hmm. And they actually got to examine physical evidence in the Amy Cooper case. And uh, under microscopes and with mass spectrometry and Mm -hmm. revealed a lot of new aspects of this and namely namely among them that there is a firm base of circumstantial evidence for a few things that weren't known before mm-hmm. like where db cooper likely worked in the years leading up to the hijacking and whether he might have survived the, the fall mm. among other things maybe it's a good time to do a, a quick little background on skyjacking because you don't hear much about it. These no, days. you don't. No, you don't. Unless you're like me and you had these notes sitting in your computer for a bonus episode. And then you found out that Drew and I literally did an episode on this oh, last awesome. week. Um, <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks. So uh, th- there are a lot of people who use the word like sky pirate mm. for these airplane hijackings. I can't. 
Um, no. Those are those are pretty like temp. Th these are like pretty temporary affairs that happen right. between you know leaving and landing. And when I think pirate, like I think someone that like takes over the ship and uses it. Right. And yeah. also, like maybe I just want like sky pirates to be like in Porco Rosa, right, where they right. like literally like have skull and crossbones like painted on. Airships. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, if you're gonna, it's a, it's a wonderful idea. It would be a very different world if we all did airships that go slow enough for piracy, but that's not the world that we live in, unfortunately. No, I have to turn to I have to turn to a lot of steampunk diesel punk yeah, stuff yeah, for yeah. that. So I'm going to quote uh, an an unfortunately overquoted author who was very good. Uh, Brandon Corner of The Skies Belong to Us, he notes that between May of 1961, when the first commercial aircraft was seized in American airspace in the end of 1972, 159 commercial flights were hijacked in the United States. All but a fraction of these hijackings took place during the last five years of that frenetic era, often at a clip of one or more per week, mm -hmm. including at one point actually had a couple points, two in the same day. Wow. The skies uh, really did belong to them, whoever they for, were. For a brief time. It was a whole bunch of people. It's basically like if you had a problem. Mm. Hijack a plane. The thought would cross your mind. Yeah. Airlines at this time, you know, there's there's two sources for the fact that you had this kind of golden age of airline hijacking. Mm -hmm. um, that is one, airlines at that time under price regulation and everything else, mm -hmm. um, they competed on the service and the experience and not on price. Mm -hmm. So the thought among all executives at the time was like, let's just be cool. Cause if we add a bunch of security and stuff, somebody's going to go to the other airline. They're not mm -hmm. going to go to Northwest Airlines. They're going to go to like Braniff Airlines yeah. or, or Pan Am or whatever. The inconvenience people. I mean, I imagine that's why the government eventually had to step in and say, yeah, it's going to work across airlines. I mean, they they added a lot of metal detectors and guards and something like that. No, at the time, it was all private all the way till 9-11 with yeah, the TSA. But essentially, they added that under the threat of the government installing security airports. Because yeah. by the time that you had uh, D.B. Cooper's hijacking, the FBI was more or less in like an open war against airline hijackers. Mm -hmm. They were storming planes with FBI like heavy weapons teams. Mm -hmm. They were uh, getting into gunfights with them on planes. Passengers were getting killed. And this is all very bad for business, mm -hmm. as you can imagine. So it, it's a little bit like how like Hollywood introduced their own like regulation of mm -hmm. themselves in order to like, head off potential congressional regulation and mm -hmm. censorship. Uh, the airlines introduced their own private security. Right. But there wasn't as much of a thing at this point. At this point, in fact, during that whole era, when you have like 159 commercial flights hijacked, no, mm -hmm. you could just walk into the airport, buy a ticket same day. You could transfer your ticket. Mm -hmm. But actually before 9-11, you could just, you could be like, I don't need this ticket anymore. Mm -hmm. And you could like sign it over to another person. Mm -hmm. But yeah, you could walk up to the tarmac. Usually did walk out to the tarmac. Um, whether to board a plane or to meet someone, you could just head to the airport day of and get on, no problem. And flights usually weren't completely booked out. But the other factor besides, you know, the competition between airlines over service and kind of vibes is the beard. Mm, Fidel. Fidel Castro. So the reason that you have the, the first airline hijacking tech place in 1960, but Cuba became the top destination. 
Mm-hmm. Because obviously you weren't going to get extradited yeah. out of revolutionary Cuba. Yep. Now, whether Fidel actually greeted you as a revolutionary or right, uh, someone to ship off to a mental asylum or right. something like might that, might be another question. Yeah. If I, as, so, at one point, uh, as kind of like a potential solution without ruining the vibes of the airlines, they thought about, like, as a consortium, the airline executives. Of whether they should build like a fake Havana airport. Huh. That, so so if the plane got hijacked, they'd be like, oh, we're absolutely taking you to Cuba. Congratulations, yeah, yeah. we landed in Cuba. And they would go out. Yeah, it would be like in, it would be like in South Florida. Yeah. Yeah. They would get off the airport and be like, oh fuck. Yeah. The FBI's there. Huh. That's gotcha. so funny. So Cooper hijacks within this context, but he also he's like a major innovator. Cooper kind of completely changed the game. And there's some not quite true allegations that Cooper was the first hijacking for profit. That's not quite right. Mm. But he is the first to do this hijacking where he's like, don't take me to like, he doesn't stay on the plane, yeah. land the plane somewhere and then expect to depart. He actually like ejects in the middle of the flight. Yes. Like this was special. Right. Yeah. No one else did that. Right. Or tried. Uh, not until Cooper did it. Right. After Cooper did it, everyone figured out that the 727 has this little feature, mm-hmm. which even the pilots of the plane did not know that you could open that back stair in the middle of the flight. And that's kind of key to a lot of people's does, theories about Cooper. Does it depressurize the cabin? No, it does not. Wow. And also it stays open. It stays fixed. Mm. You know, the pilots thought that that would it, it suck people yeah. out. Yeah. They that. Then it wouldn't stay fixed. And it would Cooper bounce around. Like, Cooper was just like, don't worry, bro. He was like, no, I got this. It yeah. totally works. Yeah. And I mean, keep in mind, he also gave them the exact speed he wanted to go. Yeah, yeah. Elevation. He had already established that he knew his shit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, but most of them tried to fly to like Cuba or Algeria or something. Yeah. Right? If you were political at all or were willing to pretend. Exactly. Exactly. Al- Al- Although Cuba. one flew successfully to Italy. Oh, wow. Where he remained. Oh. <laughs> invaded. He like became like kind of like a media celebrity. Oh wow. I mean, eventually I don't I don't know if Assad or Shakur got to Cuba, probably not from a hijack. No. That wasn't the news because she was just in the wind for a few years yeah. before she before word surfaced. No, if I'm not mistaken, I think she she did the the usual route back then, which is you know, flee to Mexico, go yeah. to Mexico City, go to go to Havana. And stayed there through today. And yeah, in her in her instance, welcomed by the Cuban government, yeah. as far as I could tell. Right, right, right. Yeah. But in Cooper's case, it does seem a bit more like he wanted to just create the illusion that he would be going to right. a foreign country mm-hmm. and then to eject in the middle and people wouldn't know where he got off. Mm-hmm. The the kind of flaw with that plan, and we can go into this, is that basically the pilot flight attendants, everyone felt like a big pressure bump when he departed the plane. So everyone knew when he got off. Yeah. And even ham radio operators who were listening at the time were like, we think he just jumped off the plane. Oh, wow. Or heard from the pilots. We think he just jumped off the plane and like mm-hmm. recorded the time and everything. That's that's more or less how we know today where he likely dropped out of the plane. And we think he asked for the two parachutes because, you know, as a failsafe. So that's an interesting thing as well. The the going theory on that, as far as I can tell, is that he ordered the two parachutes to create the illusion that he would be jumping with a hostage. Taking someone with him. That, that's what I was wondering. And thereby prevented 
um, the airline, the FBI, whomever from sabotaging his parachute mm -hmm. and just letting him drop. And this was like kind of an active consideration at the mm -hmm. time. We, you know, it reminds me a little bit of uh, the, the, the the robbery incident and the film Stockholm, mm -hmm. which is how we got the name Stockholm Syndrome, because Cooper's just asking for money yeah. and leaving. Granted, yeah, he's threatening with a bomb, but he's not like, you know, twitchy or like, I got yeah, a bomb, yeah. scaring everybody on the plane. Meanwhile, there's real active consideration by like the FBI and even the pilots of the plane, I'm like, how do we kill this guy? Mm. It's interesting for the time, but you know, how much do you want to count on a guy who threatens to have a bomb? Right. The the pilots talked about potentially taking the plane over the Pacific Ocean mm -hmm. uh, instead of taking him on the route that he requested, which is to go south towards Mexico City. Right. But he, if he gave them all that specific information, then presumably. He might be able to like read their instruments and know which way they were going. I mean, he wasn't in the cockpit. Oh, right. The whole time he stayed in, well, he stayed in a couple of places. He okay. stayed in his seat. He went into the galley at a couple points mm -hmm. to either talk with the flight attendants and at one point to kind of attach a cord to himself. Mm -hmm. And then he went into the rear of the cabin where the, mm -hmm. uh, the stairway was. We, we should probably have this in the part about how the heist went down because now we're in the... Yeah, I might have to retcon this to how the heist went down. Okay. So anyway. I thought I would read a little bit from, as the FBI actually wrote in a report on the case, they interviewed the flight attendant who had the most contact with Cooper, a flight attendant named Tina Ann Mucklow. Mm -hmm. um, she was interviewed at the airport in Reno, Nevada, where the plane ultimately, you know, touched down yeah. after it was clear that Cooper's no longer on the plane mm -hmm. and they're safe. So... As the report says, she's a calls her a hostess flight attendant, as we would say today, with a lot more respect, of Northwest Airlines Flight 305. Shortly after takeoff from Portland, Oregon, en route to Seattle, Washington, in the afternoon hours of November 24th, 1971, a male passenger on the flight who was seated in seat 18E gave a note to hostess Florence Schaffner. Mm. Schaffner showed the note to Mucklow, the flight attendant's being interviewed who was also in the rear passenger compartment. The note indicated that the male individual was hijacking the plane and wanted the hostess to sit beside him. The note further indicated that he had a bomb and wanted $200,000. Miss mm. Mucklow stated that she went back to the male passenger, seated in 18E, with the note, at which time he indicated that he was hijacking the plane and was not kidding. Mm. He added that he wanted, quote, no funny stuff. Mm. He had a black attache type case in the in his lap, in which case was partially open, and he had his hand inside the same case. At this time, Ms. Mucklow sat down alongside the individual in seat 18D, and being his extremely cool flight attendant, uh, after lighting his cigarette, mm. she told him that they would cooperate. Mm -hmm. Her best recollection is that it was while he told her he would he wanted no kidding and no funny stuff that he first partially opened the attaché case and permitted her to see the contents. She recalls the contents as approximately eight cylindrical objects, mm -hmm. about six to eight inches long, mm -hmm. with four of the items being placed on top of the others and banded together with some type of tape. Mm -hmm. She also recalled that some covered and uncovered wiring running from the cylindrical objects to a dry cell type battery, which had terminals on the end. She couldn't recall whether the wires were connected to the terminals. The battery was described as approximately eight inches long and two and one half inches in diameter. In other words, he shows her a device which could be 
right. dynamite. Yeah. But as many FBI agents who reviewed this case later think, it probably was meant to just kind of like look, look like it was probably something like road flares. Yeah. Which at the time, most people have in their cars, yes. especially in the Pacific Northwest. Oh, yeah. But you, you know, connect that up with some tape. Right. Yeah. Have some That's wires. Have a battery. It looks like bomb. Yeah. But also, if it is a bomb, it's a really crude one. Yes. So Mucklow went on to state that she had the impression upon observing the contents of the attache case that it was dynamite. However, she was unfamiliar with the appearance of dynamite and could only describe it as stated above, saying it was the red uh, of a reddish rusty color. Mm -hmm. Mucklow then advised the pilot's compartment, so she went up to the front of the plane, mm -hmm. of the fact that the plane was being hijacked via the intercom. She used the intercom while remaining in her seat as much as it was close by and she could reach the same from her seated position. It was a pre-arranged signal of bells that she was so good. What the fuck? This is such a badly written report. <laughs> Anyways, point being, they begin passing notes and Cooper crucially has them like give him all the notes back mm -hmm. after he passes them forward. Yeah. So no handwriting analysis. No, no fingerprints. Yeah. Because he doesn't good. have any gloves on, obviously. That would probably stand out yeah. already among the passengers on the plane. Yeah, yeah. But something to remember about this is this is a flight where, as far as other people on the airline can tell, is is going normally. It's In going full. completely normally. There's there's a you know a, a businessman smoking cigarettes. Um, one flight attendant comes back to him, you know, lights him a cigarette, mm -hmm. brings him a bourbon. He mm -hmm. chats up with her a little bit, passes some notes. Yeah, yeah. She comes back. They think it's just like apparently a normal 1971 right. flight with some like business guy hitting on flight yeah, attendants. Yeah, yeah. So they take the plane, the pilots take the plane, knowing it's being hijacked now, to Seattle Tacoma Airport or SeaTac Airport. All of the items are, are brought on board. The FBI has this place in circle and they're observing the plane and can see through the windows the entire time. Mm -hmm. Like they're thinking that they want to do a sniper attack if the opportunity presents itself, yes. which they had already tried to do on another flight. I, I can't tell if it was before or after this one, it was in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And that went poorly. Yeah, none of these went well. <laughs> so he gets the items and they then depart again on Cooper's requested path, which is to take him to Mexico. And at that point, the passengers are still on? They've departed. Okay. But yeah, so Cooper land, the plane with Cooper in at 305, lands at SeaTac Airport after circling it for about two hours. They bring on the money. They bring on the two parachutes and two reserve chutes, which are like kind of that front-facing mm -hmm. yeah. uh, parachute. And Cooper agrees to let the 35 passengers on the plane off. So there's only six crew members left on board when they pick up and start to fly south, uh, really southeast towards Mexico. Mm -hmm. At about 8.10 p.m., I'll be specific on that because you have that ham radio operator mm -hmm. notes, the, everyone in the cabin feels a pressure bump. Yeah. Now, just minutes before this, uh, Mucklow, had observed that Cooper was in the that rear area where the uh, the stairway can come out of that mm -hmm. 727 plane and was messing with the chute, had thrown the instructions away, mm -hmm. kind of dismissively appeared and kind of know what he was going, what he was doing, and had was tying a cord around his waist. Theory being is that he was tying the the money mm -hmm. that was delivered around his waist. She 
apparently being like, okay, well, my work's done here. I'm going to get out of it and <laughs> walk back into the main cabin. And then everyone felt that pressure bump at about 8, 10 p.m. Mm-hmm. This was above a place called Ariel, Washington in, in Southeast Washington state. Now, for those of you keeping track, that means that they started out in Portland, Oregon, flew north towards Seattle, Washington, and then started to fly southeast and that Cooper jumped out. The plane continued onward to Reno, Nevada, where after landing at Reno Airport, the remaining six members of the crew departed and were all interviewed by the FBI. And the plane was thoroughly searched. There's some really dumb people who are like, maybe he just hit on the plane and like (laughs) got out later. No, no, that didn't happen. I don't imagine that's a popular take in the vortex. No, no, but it keep, it, it's, it's considered like the classic, like, you're new here. Yeah, the classic right? newbie move. Is to be like, maybe you just hit on the plane. Yeah, in those old school forums, there was always something like that. Yeah. You know, that, that thing that showed you were a newbie that you had to get a little bit razzed for. Yeah, the vortex, um, the, the site that all of us on is called the Drop Zone. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. That has a very old school form. Yeah, yeah. Vibe to it. Let's talk about the investment story for a minute. There are many ways to tell it. It's all about what we'll get back over and above what we spend in the development and production of the first two prototype models of the SST. Because of extremely high development costs, the government and you and I as taxpayers are helping, repeat helping to finance the project through the prototype stage. But the payoff in job benefits, for example, will begin with prototype production. Once in full swing, the SST project will provide employment for more than 50,000 aerospace workers directly associated with the program. Considering that roughly two support people are needed for each prime job, that means we're talking about jobs for 150,000 people. And that's just the visible surface of the iceberg. Before departing the plane, before leaving with that parachute, because he only left with one parachute, one reserve chute, he left the other one there. Uh, proving it kind of was diversion. He wasn't mm-hmm. planning to take hostage. Mm-hmm. Cooper took off, was described as a black clip-on tie mm-hmm. with a pearl and gold clip on the center of it. Mm-hmm. This tie remained in the custody of the FBI and was examined every few years when new techniques became available mm-hmm. for a long time, but was entirely secret. They did mm-hmm. not talk about this. A couple of reporters and stuff caught that Cooper may have left a tie on the plane in, in some kind of scant reporting, mm-hmm. but the FBI didn't admit it until they brought on that citizen sleuths group and brought in the Cooper research community. And as Tom K is kind of big in this whole community says, it's the only piece of physical evidence that points back in time to how Cooper lived his life rather than just points to events of the crime at time. It's not something like the magazine, which just an item he handled on the plane, mm-hmm or cigarettes that he handled on the plane. It's something, a piece of clothing, which usually isn't ever washed. But um, we do have though, the magazines and stuff. So do we, we have the magazine, but the cigarettes were lost. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so there is, I guess from the magazine, there's fingerprints. 
Yes. Okay. Well, we can get into that later, but let's yeah. talk about the tie. So the tie becomes really interesting because it's examined under a microscope by this whole team, including a metallurgist, a whole bunch of people, and they find just years of accumulation of particles on this. They examine under a fluorescent light and they just see like tons mm -hmm. of shit on this tie. And the thing that really stands out when they actually take samples, basically tape samples with a, a bit of aluminum on them, is kind of like circular tape samples off of the tie is they find particles of pure titanium, hmm. not like a titanium composite, pure titanium in strange configurations, like mm -hmm. really solid, like machined, but microscopic parts. We're talking about like parts that are like the size of like a blood cell. Yeah. Um, so stuff that would have like flown off in an industrial process. Hmm. And the thing about titanium at the time is titanium is obviously used in lots of medical applications now. It's used mm -hmm. in golf clubs, it's used in watches, all kinds of shit. It was not used in a widespread way in the late 60s, early 70s. It was used in really high-tech military applications, in a very, very like limited set of kind of space-related applications, and it was used very, you know, in a very public way. It was going to be used as the material on the supersonic transport, mm. which was being built by Boeing, headquartered, of course, in Seattle, Washington. Mm. Yeah, it was super expensive at the time, right, to work with titanium? Extremely expensive. And yeah. uh, titanium is a very common element, but it's to actually refine it, to extract it out yeah. of various ores and stuff like that, it goes through yeah. a very complicated process um, or different processes that could have could be used. And so it's very expensive to make this highly heat-resistant but still light enough, lightweight enough element in these kind of military and non-military mm -hmm technological applications. It was considered very, very high-tech stuff. Mm -hmm. So they find that on the tie and immediately they're like, wait a minute here. This is, it narrows the field to who this person is. Mm -hmm. And it gets brought up as kind of like a counterpoint of like, he just could have bought that tie. So like a little bit about the tie, it was a cheap ass tie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a clip-on. It's a, it's a clip-on tie. It was like made by JCPenney in like 65, 66. And it clearly seems to have like five years of accumulated shit on the tie and in the fabric from whatever it is that, that Cooper was working Yeah, like with. would a store-bought tie have a bunch of random fucking aluminum on it or yeah. random titanium? Yeah. And uh, I mean, the, there's also the point brought up, and this is very reasonable, I think, that some of the elements they found on the tie, particularly after they re-examined it with electron microscopy and stuff like that, are all of the components that you'd expect from a regular cigarette smoker who lights his cigarette with a match. Mm -hmm. So that smoke drifts onto the tie and leaves those trace elements right. from the smoke and from the match. Yeah. And that's exactly what he did on the plane. Okay. And it's not just like a little bit you'd like you'd expect from a guy who just lit up on the plane, but for years. The, yeah, the amount that you'd expect from like years of accumulation of smoking. And, right, and that's separate from the titanium. Yeah, entirely separate from the titanium. The the pure titanium is interesting in part because even though it implies actually that Cooper had some role in this chain of industry, in this chain of production to build something like the supersonic transport or work on the supersonic transport, the supersonic transport itself used a titanium alloy, mm. which is not found in the tie. Mm. 
So he's at some other earlier stage than actually at Boeing on the floor when the plane's and, being made. And like that's the only place that you get pure titanium. How many? Well, no, no. So they you you could get it at like a, a titanium refining plant at a titanium refining company, but the particular combination that they found on his tie and the elements that were missing excluded a lot of them. Okay, which puts him at some some intermediate place in the production process between like where they make the raw titanium into um usable titanium for industrial applications but before it gets all the way to boeing and it's making yeah. this like composite alloy used on okay. supersonic transport mm-hmm. but they also find they also find rare earth metals mm-hmm. and like trace amounts of like really poisonous substances that are just not found in everyday life. And they, they've even compared this with like the ties of people who worked at Boeing mm. and other places at the time okay. and not found the same elements. Okay. Including like people who worked in like high-tech industries and so on. Okay. So we're not saying this was Boeing. Right. But that it had some kind of relationship to the supersonic jet. Yes. There's no other. I'm just trying to, you know, do Peter's razor or whatever. There's no other like projects that would be calling for for this amount of titanium no okay what's been theorized is it's one of these subsets of companies who were all contracted by boeing to work on pieces of this jet so you have like components from the cockpit from the tail fin from the engine and and so on um at one point there were a whole lot of research that were really focused on this portland based company called Tektronics, which made cathode ray tube components mm. for oscilloscopes. And the supersonic transport was going to have its own, like all these cathode ray tube components that were part of an onboard radar mm. it was going to have. And so they would focus on that. But then other people are like, ah, no, you could find these elements in other places, okay. these other companies. And so it goes back and forth, but like the the thing that becomes clear is that he was involved in some kind of industrial process. And that becomes very clear when they actually magnified some of these fragments they found. One of them is like a spiral-shaped, high corrosion-resistant aluminum fragment. One of them, and again, these are all like microscopically sized, was this fragment of titanium smashed with stainless steel. They also found just tons of stainless steel particles. So it's, it's as if you can imagine like, clouds of of particles of metal and rare earth metals and chemicals kind of flying off an industrial process kind of like how you get if you were like on the production floor of something but the thing thing about it is this is a tie it's a cheap tie like you'd expect you know like this like kind of poindexter 1960s engineer engineer. or like floor manager at a factory workshop to be wearing uh-huh. Interesting. And that's the thing. It says a lot about who Cooper is and the place he occupied in society. Mm. He's somewhere in this high-tech industrial process that's all going towards making the supersonic transport or a part of the supersonic transport. But he's not, he's obviously not in the C-suite, right? Yeah. So what, what what's the deal with this supersonic? I mean, I know they named the uh the basketball team after it. Obviously, it's a pretty big <laughs> yeah, deal. Yeah, that, that was very optimistic of Seattle at the time. Yeah, because we don't fly around in supersonic jets most of the time, do we? No, no. And they're subsonic. Yeah. So why why don't we do that? Why don't we why so I am not 
um, an engineering guy and can't yeah. tell you like all of the rundown of the supersonic transport. But the nearest thing that most people know is that there was there were supersonic yeah, transports. Yeah, the There's the Concorde, right? But that doesn't go around anymore either. And the United States Congress and federal government had funded a an American supersonic transport project. It was mm-hmm. going to be bigger, badder, and better yeah, than British. than the British and the French. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a heavily publicly funded project to build a commercial plane that could take passengers um, from coast to coast and across the Pacific Ocean. They would be able to export it to other countries, and it was going to radically cut down on flying times. You'd be able to, I believe the statistic was like, you'd be able to get like New York to Seattle in three and a half hours. Wow. To, like, yeah, three hours, then like New York to San Francisco or Los Angeles, like three and a half, four hours. Um, right now it's like six and a half and five yeah. and a half going the other way and obviously with overseas flights like going to london or something like that it cuts down the time radically mm-hmm. but of course this thing gets extremely hot it mm-hmm. needs to fly at a much higher altitude mm-hmm. and uh, it makes noise it, it makes sonic it, it's sonic going to yeah maybe we should have led with that because it's a supersonic transport it's going faster than the speed of sand so at any point you are beneath this plane, yeah. Any town beneath this plane, you are going to hear a sonic boom, mm. which is very loud. Yes. And so there was a lot of opposition related to that. But most of the opposition to supersonic transport came from a senator named William Proxmire, mm. who was apparently like the bane of science fiction nerds. Oh yeah. No, I I think I remember this. Yeah, because he was he was the the penny pincher. He was like. Yeah. He was a guy who, and he was a Democrat, I think. Yeah, he was who, he, he was a Democrat who took over Joe McCarthy's seat. Yeah, Wisconsin. Yeah. And he was always, uh, like, he would make big public displays, I seem to remember, of, like, government waste boondoggles. Yeah. Like, he might have been one of the guys who helped popularize, like, you know, the $300 hammer and everything. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, and, and I remember, like, Clinton Democrats from when I was a kid talking about how, oh, we need to be more like, Proxmire showing how government can work. He was absolutely like the model ahead of his time of like your like DLC uh-huh. Democrat. Like he is in the Clinton mold. And he the, the reason he was the biggest science fiction nerds, of course, isn't because just because of $300 hammer and stuff like that. He opposed NASA. He's just yeah. like, this is one big boondog. Yes. Why go to space? Who gives yeah. a shit? Yeah, that's the other. He, he, yeah, his a very like mid. Not to insult the Midwest, but a very like Midwestern sensibility of like, just cut that out. Don't have any, don't do anything because it's cool or like has a larger goal. Mm-hmm. You know, just uh just you know, just just pass the savings on to the consumer. Right. And I mean, tellingly, I mean, it really comes full circle as far as him being a neoliberal model because it's he had a huge campaign against the bailout of New York wow. City. In the 1970s, Proxmire to City dropped dead, basically, and he repeatedly held up funding for New York City yeah. during the late 70s, unless they would cut their budget more. Yeah, so he was opposed to the supersonic transit transport program the entire time. But over time, he won more and more senators to his cause of no supersonic transport. Mm. I think in a little bit of a coalition between penny pinchers who like could give less of a crap about inspiring visions of the future uh-huh. and uh, 
you know, people who didn't want to boom above their house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The early, early versions of like the NIMBY, except, you know, you really don't want a giant sonic boom over your house. Yeah. I mean, tellingly, is, uh, and I'll, I'll put my cards on table about this, supersonic transport, it, it sounds really cool and it does convey something about, you know, connecting people and improving it. And there, there is something that's genuinely lost, right? When you're mm. no longer actually trying to move larger groups of people faster across the earth, sure. I think. At the same time, it was a good thing that we did not get hundreds of these things in the air. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they were messing up the ozone layer. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, I was going to ask about the environmental impact. Like, yeah, I mean, commercial it, flights are already pretty fucking bad, but. Yeah, and granted, like you could have alternative fuels for, for uh -huh. commercial flights, just and, and and you could have alternative fuels for the supersonic transport. But the amount of heat that's generated mm. and water vapor heat apparently has a really negative effect uh, on the ozone layer. Okay. Uh, thus, you know, and the ozone is one of the few ones we've actually kind of done good on. Actually. We've done good on, and also it was a, in some ways a bigger threat than global warming because it threatens all life on Earth. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Back when it was all dumped up. Due to do the styrofoam cups, I remember we couldn't and, and refrigerators and air conditioning things. Somehow. Yeah, for some reason as a child, fluorocarbons. For some reason as a child, uh, they emphasize the styrofoam cups and how you shouldn't burn them, even though it's fun to do. But um, obviously, the supersonic transport. The crucial thing about it, and why it was so supported by labor unions among others, is it offered tens of thousands of jobs mm -hmm. doing something which is producing a good for the public hmm. and is not a weapon of war. Right. Right. I mean, obviously, the military has plenty of supersonic transports oh, already, yeah. but they're not transports for people. They're, you know, you have one pilot and transports weapons. Right. The supersonic transport, by contrast, was going to move people. It was mm -hmm. going to be commercial flight. Mm -hmm. And I think much like how kind of penny pinchers today just 86 every time uh, a high-speed rail mm. um a lot of green energy projects and stuff like that you similarly saw in the late 60s with proxmire and congress mm. uh turning away from a vision of the future like this mm -hmm. and as a result on in december of 1970 funding for the supersonic transport was canceled mm. uh, how and, much money had they spent by then i wonder how much uh, have they been doing it was in the tens of millions. Okay. Um, but it was actually like they were they were in like the, the prototype stages, like they were going to get ready to, to do it. Okay, so it was pretty advanced. Yeah, it had had cost overruns, but like it was going to happen. Yeah. And the proof is that the French and the English actually made one. Right. The French and the British, I used to say. So, you know, presumably that was uh, a blow. Uh, not just to plans for the future, but like people who were working on it, right? Exactly. So now that you no longer have this peacetime high technology production, all of the workers, not just at Boeing and in Seattle, but along the whole chain of production right. to make the supersonic transport um, started being laid off. And for the time, this was a massive localized, like regional depression in the Northwest. Mm -hmm. Unemployment went upwards of 10%. Wow. And I, I found on a historic website for Seattle uh, a flyer by a union of the unemployed, mm. which apparently existed in Seattle in 19, wow. 1971, um, that was put together for a march on Boeing. Damn. 
And uh, what they say in the flyer, it, it, I couldn't, honestly, I, I looked for more information on this group and mm -hmm. protests and couldn't find anything. They say, our nation now faces its most acute crisis since the 1930s. Price and tax increases far outstrip most people's wage gains and send those on fixed incomes into poverty. Luckily, we got rid of all that. Mm. Uh, a critical housing shortage grips most of the country. Mass transit systems cut service and raise fares, while freeways are bound and pollution chokes our population. Rats are thriving on uncollected garbage and decaying urban ghettos. Many thousands of people suffer from malnutrition. Millions of people throughout the world face the prospect of death from starvation for want of mechanical equipment to increase food production. We must use the presently wasted capacities of our defense and aerospace industries, mm. in playing to their audience there, in order to produce these desperately needed goods and services. Yet the response of the government and of the defense aerospace sector has been the Vietnam War abroad coupled with massive unemployment at home. Boeing presently leads the league in layoffs and has announced intentions to further reduce its workforce by 29,000 people in a little more than a year. Mm. 140,000 unemployed persons in the Seattle Everett metropolitan area need jobs. Mm. So they call for a march on Boeing. <laughs> well, that didn't work. No. But it does seem like some floor manager, mm. engineer, factory, supervisor decided to take matters into their own hands. Yeah, and they said they didn't have it. They said they had a grudge, but not against the airline. Yeah. And they had this unique, they had this understanding of airplanes, specifically the Boeing 727. Yep. And they had this tie with all this unique material on it mm -hmm. that implies that they were working somewhere in the supply chain and for Boeing. And close enough to the production process that there would be particles. Yes, like these specific yeah. things, right? Not like just pure titanium or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So I guess in theory, it would, you know, what you really want, and I mean, I know we're going to go over some more evidence, but it sounds like what you would want if you really want to catch this guy, which probably people kind of, I mean, people want to solve the mystery, but yeah. that's different, um, would be like a really massive record search through the various subcontractors involved in in this program and whatever else uh, might have anything basically connected to Boeing. Yeah, and I imagine that if investigators had this particular kind of like constellation of facts yeah, back in the 70s, they might have been able to do that because that type of dragnet search is what the FBI is actually good yes. at. Like being able to just do thousands of interviews and collect reams of data yeah. and sort through that way. Unfortunately, it was not done. Right. And like a and also, you'd be able to ask one more thing, which is this, was, was anyone acting a little weird around Thanksgiving? Right. Like, right. Well, presumably, whoever it was, was probably laid off. Yeah. So, oh yeah, and they'd be able to ask their relatives or whatever. Because now I'm thinking like how many defunct manufacturing plants from, would you have records for from 50 years ago right probably not too many but yeah this this boeing bust um as it's called even though it's really not just boeing hmm. it's an entire like technology bust yeah um kind of the the end of really ambitious public technology and a shift more towards private sources in a hmm. lot of ways um that boeing bust affects businesses and and careers and everything like Throughout the country. I mean, it's really concentrated in the Northwest. Yeah. And there's other clues that Cooper knew the Northwest well. Right. He looks out the window of one woman and goes, oh, that looks like Tacoma mm. um, to the flight attendant who's right. attending to. Mm.
but you know there there are potential suspects like all the way out in like Pennsylvania mm. stuff like that at various like titanium producing firms mm. and so on there is still a fun thing to examine which is like did he make it right because the the consensus view among like the FBI and a lot of research for a long time was he went out of the plane money's never been seen again mm -hmm. He's dead. Otherwise, we would have we would have seen that money somewhere. Right. The reason for thinking this, of course, is because they did take photographs of several hundred of the two hundred thousand bills, and they tried to take serial numbers on almost all of them. They didn't quite get all of them. Yeah. But you would think that, given that it's two hundred thousand in twenty dollar bills, that something would pop up. Yeah. Some of the money did pop up in nineteen eighty, hmm. uh, which gets left out of the narrative a lot. Hmm. So at the on the banks of the Columbia River in this specific area called Tina Bar, I don't know why it's called that, in 1980, uh, basically a kid with his family saw some, like a stack of cash or what appeared to be cash sticking mm -hmm. out of the sand, mm -hmm. having been apparently kind of like partly washed, that sand huh. partly washed away into the river. And he walks over to it and, and digs a bit and finds what's clearly a cash. Uh, the police are called in, the FBI shows up, given the area it's in. Kids are a bunch of good citizens uh -huh. uh, and keep it for themselves. In that kid's defense, this money looked terrible. <laughs> it was just, it, it, it was, was absolutely fun. falling apart, but it was like, it was really eroding. You would not yeah, be able yeah, to take yeah. that into yeah, yeah. a store and hand them this like, like crumbly, green crumble bill. bill. Yeah, okay. But they found three bundles of cash amounting to $4,800. And when the kid pulled the bundle out, so there was a rubber band still binding it together. There was no bag or plastic bag or anything like that, but still rubber bands were on the three bundles of money. So they're still coherently three stacks. Yeah. And the FBI's theory on how this money got there basically is is a hard one to to thread the needle on mm. because the thing about tina bar is it is nowhere on the flight path of the plane right it is well to the west mm -hmm. and the fbi had to do some so what is for how would we get in the sand at all so they came out with a thing called the palmer report they consulted a hydrologist uh -huh. who decided that basically the money must have gotten separated from Cooper. Mm -hmm. Or but we do we know it was DB Cooper money? Yes. Okay. We know from the serial the numbers that it is. Okay, because money. we didn't say that before. Oh, sorry. Okay. So it's definitely DB Cooper money. Yeah. It's not just cash. Okay. The FBI theory is that the money got separated from DB Cooper as he was falling out of the plane. Yeah. Or he like hit the ground splat, and you know it washed into. A river that's upstream of the Columbia River. Yeah. And then over time, due to a flood, it washed its way down like many miles. We're talking mm -hmm. like tens of miles to the Columbia River mm -hmm. um, from where they believe he dropped out the plane in Ariel, Washington, all the way to Tina Bar. This has more recently been pretty much conclusively disproven. Yeah. So it would have to have lasted nine years after in a river 
Yeah, and granted, they're super eroded. So the the thought yeah. was, it, it there was a flood. It washed down river. It floated its way down, uh -huh. and then it landed in this river bank and got covered with sand and sediment. And then okay. that sand and sediment then washed away, revealing the money for the kid to pick up. Yeah. The reason this doesn't work is apparently stacks of cash don't float. Yeah. No. Yeah. It sounds like they wouldn't. Um, the Kind of citizen investigators did like a variety of actually controlled videotape experiments where they got stacks of cash. And one of the funnier ones is Tom K got like a stack of $51 bills and it sealed him in plastic uh, business cards mm -hmm. that like had his phone number on him. Mm -hmm. And he's like, if you find this stack of funny, please call me. Mm -hmm. And then he placed it in the, in the, in the upstream river, mm -hmm. um, the Washuga River. And it floated about one mile and then stuck there for 18 months, huh. at, at which point he was called back by the guy who found mm. the money on the banks of the Washota River. Mm. But it, it didn't travel far. Yeah, I mean, I'm surprised it traveled that far. The, the other thing that they did is they did experiments, given that the rubber bands were still intact. They did experiments on how long could a rubber band last right. it's traveling I mean, that's river. Pretty, that's pretty wild to me because rubber bands don't last that long in my experience. No, if they're exposed, well, if they're exposed to oxygen, yeah. exposed to the outside world. But I guess if they're in a, in a river, maybe. Oh, if they're in a river, they'll erode even faster. They'll erode even yeah. faster. Okay. Um, as far as like their ability to stick together, the compounds break right, down. Right, yeah. Because I just know I, I found like old rubber bands like on shelves or whatever mm -hmm. and they're i mean they stick to the shelf they break down yeah yeah whereas if you were to seal it in a plastic bag for example right. and like put in a drawer it's usually yeah, fine yeah. what tom k points out mm -hmm. so yeah they don't survive nine years in open air or water mm -hmm. or a lot of the soil what they did find is if you were to kind of stick it really deep there soon after, so not a year after, but like maybe a couple months after, um, stick it in deep there in the sand, then the rubber band might preserve long enough to mm -hmm. be brought out. But it would have to not move. In other words, the stacks of money found at Tina Bar likely didn't float there at all. In right. fact, they, they couldn't have floated there at all. Yeah. They had to have been buried at Tina Bar, which is not at all where Cooper could have landed. Yeah. So we so in that case, an alternative theory would be that when he got up from he, he got away and then hid some money. Hid some money or gave it to someone else who hid it. I mean, the, the it's all speculation at this point. Course, the yeah. only thing we know is that there's no natural way it could have gotten that yes, far. Right. There's there's no just it falls down and, and gets in there. I mean, my thought is, I mean, he seems to be a pretty careful, smart guy. If he was going to bury it for to recover it, I feel like he'd put it in a bag to yeah. keep it from eroding. Yeah. But, and one would think like a, a plastic bag or yes, something like yes. that. Yeah. But again, speculation. But there's another thing that's even weirder about the money, Peter. Oh, yeah? Tom Kane and his team examined the individual bills. The, F the FBI gave them several of the bills to examine. To see like what kinds of like pollen, microorganisms, or whatever there are found on it, mm -hmm. to see maybe where it's been or how long it had been there. Mm -hmm. uh, and what they found were these weird ostrich-shaped diatoms, which are a microorganism that's like kind of in the same family like algae, I think. Yeah. And 
obviously not visible to the naked eye, but they cover the bills, including ones that are deep within the stacks. Mm -hmm. They've been there for some time. And the type of diatome that was in the stack is not in the Tinabar area in the winter months, including November. Mm -hmm. It just, it wouldn't have been there in the sand to go inside the bills. Okay, so it would have so the bills would have needed to have been buried at a particular time of year. Yes, and not the time that DB Cooper went out of the plane. Yes. Instead, they would have needed been buried in springtime. Okay, and the and the the diatoms could have only gotten there at the point of burial. They don't live in the sand and could have found their way down there that way. Yeah, this is a little bit of a contested point, but uh -huh. it does seem that way. Some people okay. want to do are trying to do new experiments to see if diatoms could have gotten in there later. I see. So it gets buried in November, or it falls out of D.B. Cooper's bag and first up there in November, and then diatoms get down there. Mm. But right now, it looks between the rubber band evidence and the diatoms, it kind of looks like mm -hmm. someone buried it in the spring mm -hmm. of like 1972. Interesting. So it was discovered in 1980. Uh -huh. So my question would be, okay, did he live? Did he die? Did we ever find a body? No. Or like any old suits or attache cases? No body. No attache case. No suit. No fake bomb. No fake bomb. No parachute. That's a crucial thing. It, this is a wooded area. You would think that it would catch right. on some tree and then just yeah. stuck there somewhere. No parachute. No parachute. Yeah, the parachute one is a big one because those are those are big. They're yeah, pain in the ass, and they're usually brightly colored. Yeah. Okay. So no body. No. I, mean, I guess he could have been eaten by a bear <laughs> and his parachute. Like they could use the bear could use the parachute as a napkin. Just gently dabbing yes. its its mouth. Um, more recently, there's there's been a lot of debate about whether he lived or died, and I think that. I would say, you know, without being inclusive, the debate has kind of shifted more towards he lived. Yeah. But, you know, maybe we should start out with the evidence that he's dead. Right. Right. So here's a, here's against. Here's the, 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 I wouldn't call it a Peter's razor position, right? Because there's complications with either way. Yeah. Right. But here's the FBI case. He's dead. This jump was at night mm -hmm. in the rain. Mm -hmm. Wearing a suit, normal shoes. Mm -hmm. So not a not boots, mm -hmm. um, not no coat, no coat. So even if he did make it down, he would have to survive down there in the middle of the woods in a very out of the way part yeah. of Washington in the rain, right? Cold, having just you know jumped out at ten thousand feet, right, or whatever. Mm -hmm. That doesn't seem very like a highly survivable. No, thing. I won't do that. There's also, you know, ongoing debates as to whether Cooper, like, was skilled at parachuting or right. showed that he was a novice. You have parachutists and skydivers who are like, he was obviously a skilled parachuter. He you know, took the instructions, threw them away. The way that they talk about him configuring the chute shows that he had lots of experience. Mm -hmm. Other people note that he appeared not to know certain things right and so was a novice parachutist right and i'm not going to solve that no so a researcher named martin andrade i'll give some credit to him made the case however that unless he was what the parachutists call a no pull so mm -hmm. you jump out of a plane and you don't pull the ripcord on your parachute and mm -hmm. have the parachute come out 
unless he was a no pool, he survived. Mm -hmm. And the reason he says this is it turns out that you have statistics on novice parachutist survival from World War II. Yeah. And th this I found actually like kind of cool. So the army kept statistics, the British Army, the American Army, on when the planes were shot down of those, you know, bomber crew members who were bombing Germany mm -hmm. and getting shot down by anti-aircraft fire, among those crew members who jumped out of the plane, who got out of the plane with their parachute, how many survived? Like, what's the percentage? And they didn't train them on that ahead of time. Few of them got training. Yeah. It was something it was like World War II. it was something like less than half had ever used a parachute before. All of them okay. were trained like this is a parachute. This yeah. is this is the ripcord. Yeah, yeah. Put it on your back and rage of your life. Thrown out of a plane. Right. Yeah. These were not like army rangers. Yeah, they were not. These are bomber crews. Mm -hmm. They're not supposed to. If things go well, they're not supposed to use a parachute. Uh, unfortunately, it's like one of the one of the dyingest assignments you could get in yeah. World War II, yeah. as I understand, on the Allied side anyways, mm. was being part of a bomber crew. Mm -hmm. So they have a data set of 400 of these guys who jumped out of their planes with their parachutes on. 95% survived. These guys had no training. All that happened was they just pulled the ripcord and mm -hmm. that's it. They, they drifted to the ground. Um, among those that died, it wasn't because they had, it often wasn't because they had some kind of, uh, it was often because they had like a malfunctioning chute. Mm. Um, these are just standard issue army chutes. Mm. Um, or there was an environmental issue, like they ran into like a, an obstruction or something like that and died mm -hmm. on impact or into the water, mm. which is also possible for Cooper mm -hmm. for being, you know, Miracle mindset here. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the chute they provided to Cooper, as far as anyone could tell, was a like absolutely good functional shoot because they didn't want a potential hostage to right. be killed either. Yeah. So seems like chances are he survived. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a reason we use them. I mean, they 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 work. And I mean, I never found the case that no no one found the money in circulation to ever be very convincing. Right. Because you know, leaving aside the money that's found at Tina Bar. Who fucking Who checks serial, the numbers? serial numbers? Especially $20 bills. Yeah, like it, it's entirely possible that, you know, he walks out with this money. And like apparently statistically most of the hijackers who got away at least temporarily, mm -hmm. he like goes home. Right. Right. It's a long weekend. It's Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. He goes home back to his house or back to his family if he still has family or whatever he could just kind of spend that for a long time because it's 20 dollars. Right, yeah seems like you could ease that out yeah pretty slowly i mean the only other case i know of where they're really tracking you know small amounts like small like two at a time one at a time of the ransom money is the Lindbergh baby kidnapping mm. and that was a much easier one to track because all of that money was in gold certificates, which right. been discontinued yeah. and had a different look. It's a mm -hmm. gold certificate on it. And so anytime someone saw the gold certificate, because there's so many pussy about it, they were like, is this Lindbergh baby money? Yeah. And would check. And that's why the police got called all the time mm -hmm. until finally they did get called on some Lindbergh money. Yeah. Checking like 10 or 12 times. Mm -hmm. But this is just, it's just money. And some of the serial numbers are around and they're in newspapers. And, but like, the only time anybody's going to be checking is for like a big deposit. Yeah. Right. And by the time you get to like, you know, 1974, 1975 or whatever, like who the fuck is checking? Right. And even, yeah, even at a bank, like, are you still like, 
oh, someone deposited $2,000. I wonder if it's D.B. Cooper money. Right. Like, if you're a bank in Ohio, do you give a shit? No. And, and especially because, again, not to, like, belabor the point, but, like, he didn't kill anyone. He didn't yeah. injure anyone. Like, he didn't seem to have, like, an agenda that would bother most Americans beyond, you know, uh, objection to theft. Which, yeah, no, no real American completely objects to theft in every instance, let's be real. That's what the country's built on. America likes a good heist. America likes a good heist. I mean, and if, if you want to really get dark about it, you know. America you, is a heist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not a fun one, though. Not a, not a harmless. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to believe. Yeah. I'm not willing to believe conclusively, obviously, but... Yeah, certainly more than aliens, I want to believe D.B. Cooper, like, got away. Yeah. Got the equivalent of 1.5 mil and uh -huh. probably was like, well, I'm out of the job, but I'm just going to tell my family or whatever that I'm not out of the job. Yeah, or like, oh, I, I forgot I had these uh, stocks or bonds. I, um, I went to Vegas and made a lot of money. Right. Like, Unemployment's been, the, the unemployment situ uh, insurance situation in, you know, uh, Oregon or Washington is real great. Uh, they, they gave it to me as, as one big something. Big something, yeah. <laughs> but like, you probably end up in like a house or something. Right? Oh, yeah. And at that point, you know, even if you, even if you knew he was or whatever, like, you want to tell them? No. No. Anyway. I want to believe. I want to believe. We, we, the official position of a people's history of violence is we want to believe yeah. this specific case. And, and D.B. Cooper won. Yeah. Um, so is there any other like fun D.B. Cooper stuff we should cover? Yeah, I figure we uh, figure we could close out the episode here and then do a little like overtime. Yeah. All right. I just take your questions because there's there's a lot of like wilder, crazier stuff with the case. Okay. Okay. That belongs purely in speculation. Okay, and that and that would be for yeah uh, uh, for 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 people who uh, pony us up some money and don't look at the serial numbers first. Yeah. Don't look at the serial numbers. Patreon.com slash the people's history of violence. Yeah. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.